Part three, chapter fifty seven of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Convalescent. One. One morning, not long after his return to his cave, Zarathustra sprang up from his couch like a madman, crying with a frightful voice and acting as if someone still lay on the couch who did not wish to rise. Zarathustra's voice also resounded in such a manner that his animals came to him frightened, and out of all the neighboring caves and lurking places all the creatures slipped away, flying, fluttering, creeping or leaping, according to their variety of foot or wing. Zarathustra, however, spake these words, "'Up, abysmal thought out of my depth!' I am thy cock and morning dawn, thou overslept reptile. Up, up, my voice shall soon crow thee awake. Unbind the fetters of thine ears. Listen, for I wish to hear thee. Up, up, there is thunder enough to make the very graves listen, and rub the sleep and all the dimness and blindness out of thine eyes. Hear me also with thine eyes. My voice is a medicine even for those born blind. And once thou art awake, then shalt thou ever remain awake. It is not my custom to awake great-grandmothers out of their sleep that I may bid them sleep on. Thou stirrest, stretchest thyself, wheezest. Up, up, not wheeze shalt thou, but speak unto me. Zarathustra calleth thee, Zarathustra the godless. I, Zarathustra, the advocate of living, the advocate of suffering, the advocate of the circuit, thee do I call my most abysmal thought. Joy to me, thou comest. I hear thee. Mine abyss speaketh. My lowest depth have I turned over into the light joy to me come hither give me thy hand ha let be ha, disgust 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 alas to me two hardly however had zarathustra spoken these words when he fell down as one dead and remained long as one dead when, however, he again came to himself, then was he pale and trembling, and remained lying, and for long he would neither eat nor drink. This condition continued for seven days. His animals, however, did not leave him day or night, except that the eagle flew forth to fetch food. And what it fetched and foraged it laid on Zarathustra's couch, so that Zarathustra at last lay among yellow and red berries, grapes, rosy apples, sweet-smelling herbage, and pine-cones. At his feet, however, two lambs were stretched, which the eagle had with difficulty carried off from their shepherds. At last, after seven days, Zarathustra raised himself upon his couch, took a rosy apple in his hand, smelt it, and found it smell pleasant. Then did his animals think the time had come to speak unto him. "'O oh, Zarathustra,' said they, "'now hast thou lain thus for seven days with heavy eyes. Wilt thou not set thyself again upon thy feet?' 
step out of thy cave. The world waiteth for thee as a garden. The wind playeth with heavy fragrance which seeketh for thee, and all brooks would like to run after thee. All things long for thee, since thou hast remained alone for seven days. Step forth out of thy cave. All things want to be thy physicians. Did perhaps a new knowledge come to thee? A bitter, grievous knowledge? Like leavened dough layest thou, thy soul arose and swelled beyond all its bounds. O oh, mine animals, answered Zarathustra, talk on thus, and let me listen. It refresheth me so to hear your talk. Where there is talk, there is the world as a garden unto me. How charming it is that there are words and tones, are not words and tones rainbows and seeming bridges twixt the eternally separated? To each soul belongeth another world. To each soul is every other soul a back-world. Among the most alike doth semblance deceive most delightfully. For the smallest gap is most difficult to bridge over. For me, how could there be an outside of me? There is no outside. But this we forget on hearing tones. How delightful it is that we forget. Have not names and tones been given unto things that man may refresh himself with them? It is a beautiful folly, speaking. Therewith danceth man over everything. How lovely is all speech! and all falsehoods of tones. With tones danceth our love on variegated rainbows. O oh, Zarathustra, said then his animals, to those who think like us, things all dance themselves. They come and hold out the hand and laugh and flee and return. Everything goeth, everything returneth, eternally rolleth the wheel of existence everything dieth everything blossometh forth again eternally runneth on the year of existence everything breaketh everything is integrated anew eternally buildeth itself the same house of existence all things separate all things again greet one another Eternally true to itself remaineth the ring of existence. Every moment beginneth existence, around every here rolleth the ball there. The middle is everywhere. Crooked is the path of eternity. O oh, ye wags and barrel organs, answered Zarathustra and smiled once more. How well do ye know what had to be fulfilled in seven days? and how that monster crept into my throat and choked me. But I bit off its head and spat it away from me. And ye, ye have made a lyre lay out of it. Now, however, do I lie here, still exhausted with that biting and spitting away, still sick with mine own salvation, and ye looked on at it all? Oh, mine animals! Are ye also cruel? Did ye like to look at my great pain as men do? For man is the cruelest animal. 
at tragedies, bullfights, and crucifixions, hath he hitherto been happiest on earth. And when he invented his hell, behold, that was his heaven on earth. When the great man crieth, immediately runneth the little man thither, and his tongue hangeth out of his mouth for very lusting. He, however, calleth it his pity. The little man, especially the poet, how passionately doth he accuse life in words. Hearken to him, but do not fail to hear the delight which is in all accusation. Such accusers of life, them life overcometh with a glance of the eye. Thou lovest me, saith the insolent one. Wait a little, as yet I have no time for thee. Toward himself man is the cruelest animal, and in all who call themselves sinners and bearers of the cross and penitents, do not overlook the voluptuousness in their plaints and accusations. And I myself, do I thereby want to be man's accuser? Ah, mine animals, this only I have learned hitherto, that for man his baddest is necessary for his best, that all that is baddest is the best power, and the hardest stone for the highest creator, and that man must become better and badder. Not to this torture stake was I tied, that I know man is bad, but I cried as no one hath yet cried, ah, that his baddest is so very small, ah, that his best is so very small. The great disgust at man, it strangled me and had crept into my throat, and what the soothsayer had presaged, all is alike, nothing is worth while, knowledge strangleth. A long twilight limped on before me, a fatally weary, fatally intoxicated sadness, which spake with yawning mouth. Eternally he returneth, the man of whom thou art weary, the small man. So yawned my sadness, and dragged its foot, and could not go to sleep. A cavern became the human earth to me. Its breast caved in. Everything living became to me human dust and bones and mouldering past. My sighing sat on all human graves and could no longer arise. My sighing and questioning croaked and choked and gnawed and nagged day and night. Ah, man returneth eternally. The small man returneth eternally. Naked had I once seen both of them, the greatest man and the smallest man, all too like one another, all too human, even the greatest man, all too small, even the greatest man. That was my disgust at man, and the eternal return also of the smallest man. That was my disgust at all existence. Ah, oh, disgust, disgust, disgust! Thus spake Zarathustra, and sighed and shuddered, for he remembered his sickness. 
then did his animals prevent him from speaking further do not speak further thou convalescent so answered his animals but go out where the world waiteth for thee like a garden go out unto the roses the bees and the flocks of doves especially however unto the singing birds to learn singing from them for singing is for the convalescent the sound ones may talk and when the sound also wants songs then want they other songs than the convalescent oh ye wags and barrel organs do be silent answered zarathustra and smiled at his animals how well ye know what consolation i devised for myself in seven days that i have to sing once more that consolation did i devise for myself and this convalescence would ye also make another lyre lay thereof do not talk further answered his animals once more rather thou convalescent prepare for thyself first a lyre a new lyre for behold o zarathustra for thy new lays there are needed new lyres sing and bubble over o zarathustra heal thy soul with new lays that thou mayest bear thy great fate which hath not yet been any one's fate for thine animals know it well o zarathustra who thou art and must become behold thou art the teacher of the eternal return that is now thy fate that thou must be the first to teach this teaching how could this great fate not be thy greatest danger and infirmity behold we know what thou teachest that all things eternally return and ourselves with them and that we have already existed times without number and all things with us thou teachest that there is a great year of becoming a prodigy of a great year it must like a sand-glass ever turn up anew that it may anew run down and run out so that all those years are like one another in the greatest and also in the smallest so that we ourselves in every great year are like ourselves in the greatest and also in the smallest and if thou wouldst now die o zarathustra behold we know also how thou wouldst then speak to thyself but thine animals beseech thee not to die yet thou wouldst speak and without trembling buoyant rather with bliss for a great weight and worry would be taken from thee thou patientest one now do i die and disappear wouldst thou say and in a moment i am nothing souls are as mortal as bodies but the plexus of causes returneth in which i am intertwined it will again create me i myself pertain to the causes of the eternal return i come again with this sun with this earth with this eagle with this serpent not to a new life or a better life or a similar life i come again eternally to this identical and self-same life in its greatest and its smallest to teach again the eternal return of all things to speak again the word of the great noontide of earth and man to announce again to man the superman 
I have spoken my word. I break down by my word. So willeth mine eternal fate. As a announcer do I succumb. The hour hath now come for the down-goer to bless himself. Thus endeth Zarathustra's down-going. When the animals had spoken these words, they were silent and waited, so that Zarathustra might say something to them. But Zarathustra did not hear that they were silent. On the contrary, he lay quietly with closed eyes like a person sleeping, although he did not sleep, for he communed just then with his soul. The serpent, however, and the eagle, when they found him silent in such wise, respected the great stillness around him and prudently retired. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici we meet several puzzles here. Zarathustra calls himself the advocate of the circle, the eternal recurrence of all things, and he calls this doctrine his abysmal thought. In the last verse of the first paragraph, however, after hailing his deepest thought, he cries, Disgust, disgust, disgust. We know Nietzsche's ideal man was that, quote, world-approving, exuberant, and vivacious creature, who has not only learnt to compromise and arrange with that which was and is, but wishes to have it again, as it was and is, for all eternity, insatiably calling out to Capo, or not only to himself, but to the whole piece and play. End quote. See note on chapter 42. But if one asks oneself what the condition to such an attitude are, one will realize immediately how utterly different Nietzsche was from his ideal. The man who insatiably cries the capo to himself and to the whole of his mise-en-scene must be in a position to desire every incident in his life to be repeated not once, but again and again eternally. Now Nietzsche's life had been too full of disappointments, illness, unsuccessful struggles and snubs to allow of his thinking of the eternal recurrence without loathing, hence probably the words of the last verse. In verses 15 and 16 we have Nietzsche declaring himself an evolutionist in the broadest sense, that is to say that he believes in the development hypothesis as the description of the process by which species have originated. Now, to understand his position correctly, we must show his relationship to the two greatest of modern evolutionists, Darwin and Spencer. As a philosopher, however, Nietzsche does not stand or fall by his objections to the Darwinian or Spencerian cosmogony. He never laid claim to a very profound knowledge of biology, and his criticism is far more valuable as the attitude of a fresh mind than as that of a specialist toward the question. Moreover, in his objections many difficulties are raised which are not settled by an appeal to either of the men above mentioned. We have given Nietzsche's definition of life in the note on chapter 56, paragraph 10. Still, there remains a hope that Darwin and Nietzsche may some day become reconciled by a new description of the processes by which varieties occur. The appearance of varieties among animals and of, quote, sporting plants, end quote, in the vegetable kingdom, is still shrouded in mystery, and 
the question whether this is not precisely the ground on which darwin and nietzsche will meet is an interesting one the former says in his origin of species concerning the causes of variability quote, there are two factors namely the nature of the organism and the nature of the conditions the former seems to be much the more important italics are mine for nearly similar variations sometimes arise under as far as we can judge dissimilar conditions and on the other hand dissimilar variations arise under conditions which appear to be nearly uniform nietzsche recognizing the same truth would ascribe practically all of the importance to the quote, highest functionaries in the organism in which the life will appears as an active and formative principle end quote. and except in certain cases where passive organisms alone are concerned would not give such a prominent place to the influence of environment adaptation according to him is merely a secondary activity a mere reactivity and he is therefore quite opposed to spencer's definition quote, life is the continuous adjustment of internal relations to external relations end quote. again in the motive force behind animal and plant life nietzsche disagrees with darwin he transforms the struggle for existence the passive and involuntary condition into the struggle for power which is active and creative and much more in harmony with darwin's own view given above concerning the importance of the organism itself the change is one of such far-reaching importance that we cannot dispose of it in a breath as a mere play upon words Quote, much is reckoned higher than life itself by the living one End quote. nietzsche says that to speak of the activity of life as a struggle for existence is to state the case inadequately he warns us not to confound malthus with nature there is something more than this struggle between the organic beings on this earth want which is supposed to bring this struggle about is not so common as is supposed some other force must be operative the will to power is this force Quote, the instinct of self-preservation is only one of the indirect and most frequent results thereof End quote. a certain lack of acumen in psychological questions and the condition of affairs in england at the time darwin wrote may both according to nietzsche have induced the renowned naturalist to describe the forces of nature as he did in his origin of species in verses twenty eight twenty nine and thirty of the second portion of this discourse we meet with a doctrine which at first sight seems to be merely le manoir à l'envers indeed one english critic has actually said of nietzsche that thus spake zarathustra is no more than a compendium of modern views and maxims turned upside down examining these heterodox pronouncements a little more closely however we may possibly perceive their truth regarding good and evil as purely relative values it stands to reason that what may be bad or evil in a given man relative to a certain environment may actually be good if not highly virtuous in him relative to a certain other environment if this hypothetical man represent the ascending line of life that is to say 
if he promise all that which is highest in a greco-roman sense then it is likely that he will be condemned as wicked if introduced into the society of men representing the opposite and descending line of life by depriving a man of his wickedness more particularly nowadays therefore one may unwittingly be doing violence to the greatest in him it may be an outrage against his wholeness just as the lopping off of a leg would be fortunately the natural so-called wickedness of higher men has in a certain measure been able to resist this lopping process which successive slave moralities have practiced but signs are not wanting which show that the noblest wickedness is fast vanishing from society the wickedness of courage and determination and that nietzsche has good reasons for crying quote, ah that man's baddest is so very small ah that his best is so very small what is good to be brave is good it is the good war which halloweth every cause End quote. see also paragraph five higher man End of Part 3, Chapter 57, Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.